Colossians 4, 10 through 14. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Areopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So, you know, I'm sure it's true of you as it is for me that in Christ we, we develop mutual soul friendships, don't we? And with others, you know, and those, as time goes by in Christ, become the, uh, you know, the closest, most tightly knit friendship, even above, fam- you know, blood family, right? But the the blood of Christ family, it really, I mean, if it's different for you, you know, that's, what it is, I guess. But for me, I, I can tell you that the brothers and sisters relationships that I have in Christ that span every age um, seem to be much closer, more personable than even the relationships I have with my you know, immediate blood family. I mean, would you all attest to that? And that's what's going on here with Paul at the end here of this letter. And our, you know, our prayers focus on them, our, our fellowship focuses on them, and, and there's great benefits of that. You know, as, as we look at it, I remember, and I think I've probably shared this, but it, it's just a really stark contrast of before Christ and after Christ of this being true. A lady that, she's passed away now uh, recently, that I found out after I was saved that she had been praying for my wife and I and our family for over four years that we would get saved. And uh, I found out, like I said, afterwards. And and um, it was so neat that she knew the struggles we were going through as a family and and she had been diligently praying for us. And, and she's, she was a good Southern Baptist gal. I'm a good Southern Baptist guy. We don't believe in the hocus pocus. You know that. But th- that next, I got saved on, on a Monday, Labor Day, and I, so we were off work. Tuesday, I went to work, and she came up to me, and she said, something happened to you recently, didn't it? And I was like, yeah, I got saved. And she just burst into tears. So I don't know if I had a halo over my head. or, <laughs> But she saw that, you know, and she was significantly older than, than, uh, than me and my wife. And I would have, in a million years, I wouldn't have hung out with somebody 15, 20 years older, right, before Christ. And uh, they invited us over to dinner, and we would hang out and, you know, just just a fantastic relationship. And like I said, she passed away this year, and um, as we went to the funeral, and her husband was there, and we still communicate with him, not as much as I should. That's a reminder I need to do that this week. But, you know, and, and just the blessings that flow out of that, right? And... Um, you know, and then, you know, that was on the older end. And then, like, there's a guy sitting back there with a blue shirt on that, you know, he's much, much, much younger than me, you know. And, and yet we have a great relationship. You know, he'd come over and sit in the house with me and Kit and chat and talk and 
Just, you know, there's no barriers of any of that in Christ. And that's one of the coolest things to me about, a, you know, the, the Christian uh, Christianity, this fellowship, the fullness of the fellowship. Now, when that starts to wane in our lives, I think, is when what? What, what would cause that to start to break a little bit? I think sin, right? You know, like if I've got sin in my life right now, you know, then I'm going to probably stay clear of some of y'all. Some of you that know me the best, I'm going to kind of try and start hiding. You know, and for those of you that got teenagers, you know, that's that's kind of a thing to look at. You know, <laughs> when they start withdrawing, you can kind of start, well, what's going on here? But but the, this dynamics of the Christian fellowship and friendship uh, the Apostle John also beautifully displayed that in 1 John 1, 3, where he said, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, a primary motivation behind John's proclaiming of the gospel was that his hearers be brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son. Isn't that great? And because of that fellowship um, in the church, it just it's the kind of the glue to me that holds it all together. We could say that fellowship with the Godhead spawns fellowship with others. If I'm rightly related with, with God through Christ and I've got that relationship with him, then that just that bleeds over into my life to other people that 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 causes it. Well, you could say it like this the the key quality of our earthly fellowship is the is the quality of our fellowship with God. If we're tightly knit with God in that fellowship, then we're going to be tightly knit with one another in the fellowship of, uh, of the body. Um, you could say it this way, those with the richest fellowship with God have the richest fellowship with each other. And, you know, in Colossian terminology that we've been looking at, the fullness of Christ floods our souls and it overflows to others. If the others are believers, then guess what? Their lives overflow as well, right? There's mutual recognition that goes back and forth, mutual refreshment in the fellowship with believers. In the book, in, in the book of Acts alone, um, there are over 100 different Christians associated with Paul, right? I mean, isn't that incredible? I mean, in, uh, he named 16 different friends in Romans 16, and here in Colossians, he names 10 people that he's been friends with and ministering with. So people are, are what it's all about, right? And along with what we can call from their backgrounds here and the nature of their greeting suggests that they all had this overflowing fullness of fellowship with Christ in their lives. So this fellowship crosses racial and religious barriers. And, and, and I love that. We've looked at this, I think, at least two other times in Colossians where in Christ, the racial and religious barriers are, they're dissipated. They're just gone. And in this passage, there are six individuals mentioned in um, three were Jews and three were Gentiles. And the three Jews were Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called Justice. Uh, look again at verse 11 there. Paul said of them, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So then he went on to name the Gentile believers, which were Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. And language, 
national animosities and the differences in religion and culture have divided the world then and it still does today. Uh, the only thing, you know, it's divided into hostile camps, which can only be held together by some weird kind of outside power. You know, so I think, you know, Satan's behind all that, right? Now, I did read something this week that one of the reasons, I, you can take this for what it's worth, I can't even remember who said it. Um, one of the reasons that there are different denominations um, the thought just left me. Oh, yeah, was and different forms of church government and whatnot was God's way of of uh, making us not like the Catholics in a sense, to where there's one ruler and he rules every church in the world under that denomination, right? I mean, whether it's in the mountains of southern Peru or in you know the Timbuktu. You know, the Pope is above and head over all of them. And so maybe, I think it was Wayne Grudem, I think that's where I read that, not positive, but um, in his Bible Doctrine book. That's kind of a neat way to think about, you know, because, I mean, haven't y'all often wondered, you know, why are there different denominations, you know? Why can't we get along? And Well, I think we can. I think we should, right? Regardless of what, you know, that's one thing. This is a plug for my Thursday night group. That's one thing I love about that group. I don't care where you go to church. You need to be going to church, right? But as long as the Bible is being taught, whether, you know, we, we don't need to divide over denominational lines, right? There are some other denominations that have done some great work around the world, regardless of what we Southern Baptists think. There just is, Right. And, uh, I mean, I've got a friend in Montgomery that's a Methodist preacher, and, you know, he's, he's a great preacher. You know, I don't agree with much of the Methodist church is doing at all, but, you know, if, if somebody was sitting under this guy's teaching, I'm okay with that. He's a great Bible teacher. And, you know, so we, we just got to be careful with that. And th- that's what these bonds pull together, and Paul's showing us that here, that we don't have to be in hostile camps with that, Right. With Paul's guidance, both camps can meet together willingly and lovingly and come into unity. Because, you know, when we get to heaven, it ain't going to be all Southern Baptists. (laughs) You know, there will be some Catholics there. You know, um, there there will be some uh, Jews there, I'm sure. Um, You know, not, of course, Jews that are complete in Christ, not uh, if they haven't been, but... And, I mean, Christ demonstrated this, right? And that, that's kind of the intent of the whole gospel. And so this is what happened in Rome and elsewhere. And, and you know, it's, it's not been easy for these divisions through the course of history. It, it's, it's a terrible testimony to, um, uh, to the world, isn't it? I mean, it's a horrible testimony to the world. And the Gentiles in Rome, they were ready to mix. That's who we need to be like, right? And, 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 but the Jewish believers there, ah, they weren't quite there. They, they still had to, you know, you still had to be circumcised and you still had to follow the Jewish ceremonial laws. But when Paul came to Rome, um, these legalistic-minded believers, uh, they gave him a pretty cold reception, rejecting his authenticity of his charge. Um, there were only three Jews there that helped him, and they were receptive and loving. And 
they had, as our terminology has developed, or mine anyway, with this, they, they had this Colossian fullness. And, you know, it is impossible, absolutely impossible to hold racial prejudices in the heart of a spirit-filled person. Impossible. Can't do it, right? That goes against everything Paul's been teaching us here. It goes against everything Christ has taught us. And, and that is as much uh, uh, true today as it was in Paul's day here. I was with a guy a couple of weeks ago um, in, in Montgomery, in Alabama, and they, um, this guy in his church, uh, Brian Irby went to a seminary with this guy, a black pastor in, in Montgomery, a uh, uh, young man played... Um, College got a college scholarship at um, is it Tuskegee and and played quarterback there. Got saved in campus outreach there. And um, after the guy that led him to Christ, um, I think um, a guy that John Mike, that's invested in John Michael's life a lot and mine as well, a guy named Aaron Fleming, uh, invested in this young man and and told him he needed to go to Master Seminary. So he went, and he was there at the same time Brian Irby was there. Were you there when Brian was there, or you were ahead of that? This guy, Terrence, uh, you know who I'm talking about? So anyway, he goes back to Montgomery, and he planted a church in the hood. And and this church is um, probably 75% black and 25%, or maybe 20% white and uh, 5% um, Hispanic. So it's a great mix, right? But I mean, it's in the poor dirt neighborhood of Montgomery. And there's another guy there, a white guy that has a ministry for addicts. And I've been talking with him over the years, kind of coaching him and mentoring him and along the way with that. And he, he, uh, so anyway, the church, the name of the church is Strong Tower. They they decided to start a, uh, a rehab program like his steps, and um, they bought a house. So I went to see the house, and we, I need to move to Montgomery. This is a five thousand square foot house built in the eighteen fifties. You know, got the twelve foot ceilings, the giant windows with that wavy looking glass that's so cool in them. You know, I mean, this thing is the five thousand square feet. It has a 2,000-square-foot building behind it that they just got crammed full of junk right now. They're almost, they're probably four or five months away from, depending on how their donations go, from finishing the house and taking guys in there. But I, I was talking to another friend, and I, I said, I, I can't believe that you, that, I didn't give you the price yet, did I? $50,000. I said, I'm moving. If I can, and, and that's what I was saying to this guy. I said, "Good grief!" And um, he said, "Yeah, but you got to look at the neighborhood." And that hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, after I study stuff like this, why would that matter? You know, I mean, if it's a great deal, I don't. Care. He said, "You got to look at your neighbors." And and you know, shouldn't we be looking at our neighbors as a gospel opportunity? And uh, regardless of if, you know, of background and color or whatever. So 
anyway, uh, I'd be all over this thing for fifty thousand dollars. You know, yeah, I was like on three or four acres on top of that, and it's right down the road from Montgomery Country Club. You know, I mean, <laughs> how bad could that be, right? But, you know, when Christians refuse fellowship with other healthy, spirit-filled believers, there's only one conclusion that we can come up with, right? And that is that there's something wrong with their relationship with God at, at that time and in that moment. I'm not saying they're not saved. I would never say that, but something's wrong. Because when we have the fullness overflowing like Paul's been teaching us here, if we've been filled with Christ and we're walking with him, then we're, like John said, we've got this fellowship with one another, right? And friendship goes with that, regardless of our backgrounds. You know, I, I mean, I'm so thankful that you could take somebody off the the manure pile and, and they can uh, associate and affiliate with somebody from the palace in Christ, right? Because you recognize that you are the same. And, and that, that's just so awesome that um, I remember reading years ago a Puritan, and I can't remember which one it was, but he was talking about the lowly violet. You know, where does the flower on a violet grow? You ever, you've probably never seen one, have you? Because it grows underneath the leaves pointing towards the ground. But if you see one, take it and look at it. It's a beautiful flower, right? Well, who's worshiping that? The ant, maybe, as he walks by and looks up, you know, I mean, but there's just, you know, that is as equal in beauty as a rose that we all get to see, right, if you really look at them like that, and that's how people are, and um, as I said, the Jewish believers in Rome were, um, they were being harsh, but as Paul began to minister with them, and these three guys in particular, they started experiencing the fullness of that fellowship, and it was overflowing to the church in Colossae. And you remember Mark earlier in his life, right? This John Mark guy had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on on their their first great missionary journey, and then what happened? You know, abandoned, right? And uh, we don't really know why. Maybe it was a tough um, tough duty, and he'd had enough. You know, I mean. Go hang out with Brad and Gina Shaw in southern Peru. You know, it's a great place to visit, but, you know, it's hard. You know, and I imagine if you were tagging along with Paul, unless you're a combat-ready infantry soldier, you probably wouldn't enjoy it, right? Regardless of what you saw happening, because it's it was tough. And, and maybe that's what happened to John Mark, right? But the result ended up in separation, well, Barnabas took John Mark with him, and Paul recruited Silas and took him. But now, here we are, 12 years later, and John Mark's with Paul in Rome. Isn't that awesome? They separated and did ministry in different arenas and in different ways, and now, 12 years later, here we are, and John Mark's ministering to him in prison. And uh, he says in verse 10, uh, uh, as Paul sent Mark's greeting to Colossae, he, he, he commended him saying, if he comes to you, welcome him, right? And in the accompanying letter to Philemon, he called him his fellow worker in Philemon 24. And later at, at the sunset of his ministry, he said to Timothy, only Luke is with me. Greet Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. They had separated in ministry, you know, years before, 
But now Paul's saying, you know, he's helpful for me in ministry. And, and, and so they could still be friends with the fullness of Christ in life. There's no way that, the two, that two men who both love God and are walking in fellowship with him would not have fellowship with one another as life goes on. Can't happen, right? Um, so that kind of brings the question of if there's two believers who can't be reconciled, what's wrong? Right? One or both of them are not in fellowship with God. So the expansiveness of the Christian fellowship is seen in the desire of these six to send greetings to those in Colossae. You know, they hadn't been there, um, and, and they lo- but they love the believers there anyway. Haven't you been to churches in other countries, those of you that have? Never seen these people in your life. Don't speak the language, but you walk in and there's something there. Well, what in the world is that? You know, it's the Spirit, you know. I would much rather sit in a, the little church in Cotahuasi, Peru, you know, with 25, 30 people. I would much rather sit there and observe them worshiping in Spanish than for them to try and do something in English for me. You know, the Holy Spirit, I, I couldn't tell you what they're saying. Maybe recognize, I'm kind of tone deaf, so I really don't even recognize the song. I, I ask Kit, you know, hey, what's that song? <laughs> oh, that's Amazing Grace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, there's just, it's there, right, that you can worship like that. And that's the spirit. Um, I remember we were with the Dowdies in that church in uh, Neso Waculio in Mexico. Uh, and um, that was, I felt it there more than any other church I've been in. I mean, God was in that place and the fellowship that was there was just incredible. Um, the power of the spirit there just bringing people I mean it was just awesome and and that's that's what Paul's getting at here right and what Paul said about Epaphras suggests something of, of what they were like look at verses 12 and 13 Epaphras who is one of you a servant of Christ Jesus greets you always look at that struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Areopolis. So Epaphras was from Colossae. He'd come all the way to Rome because he was concerned about the Gnostic heresy. So he's coming to Paul. What do I do? You know, this heresy is spreading through my church. So what's going on there? You know, I think he's heeding that Advice from uh, Solomon in Proverbs, you know, in the abundance of counselors, there's, there's wisdom. He's going to Paul, help me, what do I do? You know, he had a profound concern for his fellow believers. It says he was always struggling. You know, that's the same Greek word that we get the English word agonize. He's always agonizing on your behalf in his prayers. And Paul had watched him pray for the Colossian church and and that's how he described him. You know, have you ever, I mean, is there somebody you could say that about that you know or you yourself have agonized in prayer for a fellow believer? <clears throat> um, that's the same root word for when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when, prayed uh, when he was fervent in prayer. Uh, he cared. Epaphras cared. He prayed that they would stand mature, it tells us, and fully assured in all the will of God. This was a selfless, giving, big-hearted prayer, right? 
And Paul concluded his portrait of Epaphras by saying, look at that, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Areopolis. That, that means he literally distressed over them. And uh, when we have fellowship with Christ, we naturally take on some of that heart in ministry. We have deep concern. There was a preacher, Philip Brooks, in Boston in the 1800s. He put it this way. Listen to this quote. This is just wonderful. Quote, To be a true minister to men is always to accept new happiness and new distress. The man who gives himself to other men can never be a wholly sad man, but no more can he be a man of unclouded gladness. To him shall come with every deeper consecration a before untasted joy, but in the same cup shall be mixed a sorrow that it was beyond his power to feel before. You get it? I mean... It's it's both, right? Back and forth. So that's the way it was with Epaphras and his co-workers. His enlarged heart made him vulnerable, I can't say that word, vulnerable <laughs> to the burdens of others, right? And, and that's where we find ourselves often, isn't it? That's what keeps you up at night sometimes. That's what gets you up early some mornings, right? This carrying, 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 handling, the burdens of others. And uh, also this fullness and fellowship encompasses, encompasses marginal people as well, not just all those like he just mentioned, but he concludes with Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So, of course, Luke, you know, the only Gentile writer of any book in the New Testament, the much-beloved Christian physician, devoted friend, historian, all wrapped up into one. Great guy, right? But Demas, he got another story going on there. Later, Paul wrote in uh, 2 Timothy 4, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. Right? He had deserted him. But perhaps Paul was a little bit aware of that right now. Maybe he was showing signs of that. He was the only one of the um, six that there wasn't any comment in greeting him here. Maybe he was starting to manifest that. But Christian fellowship is not meant to be perfect, but it is always stretching. So, do you know any Demases in your life right now? I mean, I certainly do with the ministry that I've run for the last um, 19 years. Tons of them, right? That that are uh oh, <laughs> that are uh, walking with you and you know appearing to do ministry with you and everything else, and then you know then they're gone. This isn't working real well. Is it on there? Yeah, we so, um, you know, what do you do with that? Do you quit loving them? No. No. Do you quit ministering? No. You continually be more like Epaphras and be praying for them, diligently striving for them. Your Christian fellowship makes bigger people out of us, right, who have a greater capacity for sorrow and for joy. You know, we've got to balance those, right? Um, we have something wonderful to offer to the world as we do this. And that's, again, what John was saying. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we offer first the fellowship with God, not just the knowledge of God, but a relationship with him. And, and that's always a, 
perplexing thing to me in that Thursday night study. I, I just said it then. I say it to myself often, you know, how well do I really know God? You ever think about that? You know, the, the, for me, the, the, the hard part of that is I can't see him. I can't hear him. I can't touch him. I can't smell him. You know what I mean? Y'all, uh, that's tough, but that's what we're supposed to be doing. How do we share him with others if we don't know him intimately like that? So that's why we're to always be cultivating and developing that relationship with him. And when we do, then we're full of him and that overflows to us, which then helps us overcome barriers in our lives, grievances, and it produces a large heart, right? Um, so in closing the letter, Paul, look at verses 15 through 18. I think he starts to show us now the fullness of his heart even further. He says, um, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So for Christians, I think what I've come to understand is there are two distinct courses of life available. For Christians, for believers in Christ, for saved people, there are two distinct courses of life. One is to cultivate a small heart. And you know what? By far, no question about it, hands down, the small heart is the safest and easiest way to go because it minimizes sorrows in life, right? If our ambition is to avoid trouble, if our ambition is to avoid people, the formula is simple. Minimize the entangling relationships, right? Do not give yourself to people. Carefully avoid them, right? And if we do this, we'll escape the host of afflictions that are certain to come upon us if we do deal with people. And lots of people, lots of Christians go through life with a minimum of tribulation by having small hearts. And... Um, Shane's always been one to reel me in on this. Yeah, I can't wait to retire and get that cabin up by that stream in the mountains. Well, who are you going to minister to up there by that stream, you know? <sighs> you know, so, I mean, those are reeling those thoughts back in, right? People are in the cities, right? There are people in the country, but you know what I mean? The majority of mankind lives. Why do we have cities of six million people like Atlanta? Because... That's, you know, there's just, there's more ministry opportunities here. So can I suck it up for 70-something years, 80, 90, however long, and, uh, and minister to know that eternity is there, you, you know? But the small-hearted people up in the mountains by the stream, you know, can I vacation in your cabin? Thank you very much. But, you know, feed the trout before I get there so they'll bite. Or, you know, grow big and then don't feed them for a week so they'll bite. Well, the other path is to cultivate a ministering heart, and that's what Paul shows us, right? And when we do that, we open ourselves up to others and we become susceptible to lots of sorrows 
And um, an enlarged heart uh, will enlarge your potential for pain, uh, not physical pain. Well, maybe physical pain. Uh, I got hit one time for addressing God the Father. Harder than I've ever been hit in my life. And it was a girl about that tall, weighed about 80 pounds, a crack addict. And she popped me like I've never been popped. Had a handprint on the side of my face for two weeks. That's how hard she hit me. But um, So pain, but really more of the emotional, I'm sure, is a lot worse. But, but you know, the effects of these two kinds of hearts upon those around them are drastically different. Think of that. Little-hearted people... Those safe and protected never contribute anything to the kingdom of God. They're saved, yes, God, thank God for that. But nobody else benefits from their life because they're not ministering, right? And on the other hand, large-hearted people are vulnerable, but they have the most joy, and they leave the greatest impact on the earth. I mean, why do we read books now that are four or 500 years old by great men and women of the faith? You know, there were tons of other people of the faith back then too, right? But why aren't they, why aren't we reading their stuff? Well, they probably didn't write it because they were little-hearted people. They're in the kingdom, but, you know, um, anyway. Um, Kent Hughes said this, Cultivate deafness and we will never hear discord, but neither will you hear the glorious strains of a great symphony. Cultivate blindness, and we will be spared the ugly, but we will never see the beauty of a sunset or a bird on the wing. Cultivate a small heart, and life may be smooth sailing, but we will never know the heady wind of the Holy Spirit in our sails. Isn't that good? So as we come to the final paragraph of the book here, we need to remind ourselves of the background of Colossae. Remember where this all came from, right? And and, and Paul, he he's, uh, he's in prison in Rome. He's chained to a guard and he hears this report uh, of what's going on in the church, the trouble that's starting to arise. He's a thousand miles away from Colossae and he pulls out his pen and paper or his uh, secretary does and they start to work. And uh, I mean, what a mind, right? And the whole, of course, the Holy Spirit's the one that's, that's doing this, but you know, how, I mean, really, how long does it take us to read 1 1 through, what is it, 418? You know, not very long, right? So, how long do you think it took him to write it? Um, you know, I'm sure he wasn't doing like I do when I'm writing something. Hey, kid, how does this sound? You know, well, you better change. You know, because he was guided by the Holy Spirit. So, it was the truth of God coming through that as he's writing it. You know, probably an hour, maybe, be my guess. I don't know. But um, think of that, of just how that day was going for him. You know, the cell wasn't very big. He's chained to this guy, and he starts to write. And um, he, he um, gave us, you know, if, if you go to where this was today in the Lycos Valley, a few poor farmers are still there, and that's about it. But we're still benefiting. The body of Christ is still benefiting from this today, right? Um, So just since we can go get our pictures taken, I'm going to skip a bunch here about where we've been. But listen to what, um, remember the the portion in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Flip there real, real quick and let's leave that because, read that. 
having finished his prayer as he opened the book, he, get, he then gives us the most remarkable, full revelation of Christ to be found in any of the epistles. And he says this about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, bottom line, what you and I think of Christ is everything. Right? I mean, it is everything. And again, uh, Kent Hughes said this about this passage. If you believe that Christ is eternal without beginning and without end, that he always was continuing, if you believe that he is creator of everything, every cosmic speck across trillions of years of trackless space, the creator of textures and shapes and colors which dazzle our our eyes, if you believe that he is the sustainer of all creation, the force which is presently holding the universe together, and that without him all would dissolve, if you believe that he is the goal of everything, that all creation is moving toward him, if you believe this, then nothing much can go wrong with you. Isn't that good? I mean, that's it, right? The bottom line is we can't think too highly of Christ. You can't think too highly of Christ. And that's the heart of the book of, of, of Colossians, I think, and everything else flows out from that. So in ending, Paul gives us um, a, a final greeting that I think shows his, uh, his full heart towards the Lord and mankind. And he says in verse 15, 415, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. Now, he'd never been to Laodicea, but his large-heartedness compelled him to greet the church there. And um, then in verse 16, And when this letter has been read among you, have it, read, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So he encouraged the exchange of letters, um, between these two locations and had them read aloud. And we certainly know from Revelation 3 that the Laodiceans needed help, right? They'd grown cold or not hotter or cold. They were lukewarm. They were going to be rejected by Christ. And then in verse 17, Paul encourages a young leader in the Colossian church and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And we know from Philemon 2, which we're going to look at Philemon next week, that, that many people, and I think rightly, deduced that Archippus was the son of Philemon and Epaphia. And um, maybe Epaphras told Paul of Archippus's, you know, spiritual life coming alive, and he's pastor in this church now. And, and so Paul recognizes his ministry. And, and he says uh, that you have received the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Fulfill it, right? And that, that's just a great pastor's heart to a young guy that's starting a, a church, you know, to encourage him and, and um, build him up with the fullness of Christ to continue. Now, again, just think of if you were inspired by the Spirit and, um, and you just finished this wonderful letter, uh, 
take a deep breath. Oh, that guard is still chained to me. You know, he didn't go anywhere. And he, he, after being exhausted like that, he simply says in verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my change. Grace be with you. Um, you know, he was in jail, but in God's sovereignty and providential workings, he could not stop Paul's soaring full heart, right? And he closes with the grace be with you. And, um, you know, what he's really saying is, may God's unmerited, freely given favor rest upon all of you in the church of uh, Colossae. And, you know, he um, just continues to encourage to the very end with that, doesn't he? So, um, with that, um, I mean, what a challenge for us. You know, the, the communication of God's grace to a needy, sinful world. That's our responsibility, right? And, and that's how Paul has taught us through this. John put it this way, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and t- truth. And then verse 16, chapter 1. Of John, for for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So, in closing this letter, you know, I, for me, the best thing I could think of was, Lord, here's my cup, fill me up with you, so that I can then go and be an encouragement to the world around me, right? To not only to the lost world, but the fullness of Christ in me, splashing forth on um, other people as well, right? So, any final thoughts from y'all of closing on Colossians? Next week we'll look at um, Philemon. And uh, the week after that, Drew is going to uh, take us on a journey. Um, Can I tell where you're taking us? Is that all right? You you settled on it? We're going to study Acts, the book of Acts. So, um, So, we'll go from there. So.